0: This weekend, we began a new series out of 1 Corinthians, and we've called the series The Prodigal Church, The Prodigal Church because it's a church that has drifted or is drifting away from God, and therefore, the prodigal side of this story is that Paul, who's writing to the, the Corinthians, has said, you need to come back, you need to come back to where you departed, okay, and that's the first principle of any journey, isn't it? is that if you get lost, you've got to go back to that point of departure. all right? So you, that's what we used to do before we had Google. all right? So we used to go back to the point where we knew where we were, and then we work it out from there. So what Paul is doing is he's going to raise a whole lot of challenges, raise a whole lot of questions about the behaviour of the Corinthian church and how it is that they have drifted away from what it is that he originally laid down as a foundation. Now, this morning we're going to be um, challenged, I think, because we are looking at a, um, I'll turn this on. That'll help. We're looking at a, a portion of Scripture which is very easy to overlook. Uh, but the title of the message this morning is called "Voices." Voices. What are the voices that we hear? What are the voices we listen to? But I can tell you, I can expect you to be challenged because of this simple piece of Scripture this morning. But before we get there, what I'm going to do is take us back to the beginning of this letter to the Corinthians and we're going to look at the first nine verses, and I want you to do something with me. As I read it, I want you to just remember, or count, should say, how many times the word, or the name, Christ appears. All right, let's go. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. "'their Lord and ours. "'Grace and peace to you from God our Father "'and the Lord Jesus Christ. "'I always thank my God for you "'because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. "'For in him you have been enriched in every way, "'with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, "'God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. "'Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift "'as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ "'to be revealed.'" He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. How many times? Nine. Nine. How many verses? Nine. Incredible, is not it? Do you think he's trying to tell us something? (laughs) That from the beginning, the middle and the end of this introduction, it's all about Jesus Christ. And this is really important for us to understand as we push on into these next few verses. But the story that we're looking at here is a story of new beginnings. The town of Corinth was a place of of great um, accumulation, great gathering of culture and traditions. It was a place of trade, a a place where people met and this melting pot of religion and different, uh, different food, different customs, different ways was all happening in Corinth. And here comes Paul And by the leading of the Spirit, he plants a church here in this incredible boiling pot of cultures and faith. And so Paul is saying it's all about Jesus right at the beginning. This letter that he writes to the church saying it's all about Jesus, always will be, always has been. And he just wants to make sure that people are hearing this. Now he goes into the challenge that this church faces and he takes on one of the giants. And I think it's one of the giants for us today too in respect to the voices that people are listening to. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Okay? So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, listen, if I had it my way, you'd all get a computer chip, we'd load it in, And every week you get a fresh one loaded in and we'd all be a one mind, one thought. Is that what he's saying? No, he's not saying that. But what he is telling us is that unity is really, really important. Okay, and divisions do nothing but bring about animosity and tension and destruction. So what is it about this unity that Paul is trying to unpack for us here? Remembering that uniformity is not, sorry, unity is not uniformity. It's not all being one. We're not all just going to, dress up and wear the same coloured overalls and all look exactly the same with the same haircuts. That's not what unity is about. Unity is all about the person of Jesus Christ being put first and foremost in your life and his voice being the dominant voice, the prominent voice in your world. Paul says this, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think, Differently, that too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. When it comes to unity, Paul says there's room for unity, but there's also room for us to have difference. But the most important thing when it comes to unity is that we understand what we're disagreeing about. Does it make sense? So we can agree to disagree. Paul, in this passage I just read, is writing to the Philippians. There was, again, disunity in that church. But what Paul is saying here is that if there's something that you think differently about, uh, at a minimum, as you process this difference, live up to what you've already attained. In other words, don't turn into a bunch of two-year-olds. Don't act your shoe size at your age. And so often we find that when there's a disagreement, very, very mature people turn into squabbling kids and have the sense in which um, you know, they're right and therefore they're going to defend that position without listening to anybody else. And in doing so, they just create tension, division, animosity. And it doesn't matter whether you're in kindergarten or in parliament. It seems to be the way it is, that people disagree and they seem to devolve back into their base nature. Paul is saying, if you disagree, at least live up to what you've already attained. In other words, Act your age, not your shoe size, and we might have some hope here of getting into the future without a punch up. Okay? So, what's the, problem? what's the problem in Corinth? Let's have a look at what this problem is. Paul says, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me. Chloe's household wrote Paul a letter. That there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this one of you says, I follow Paul another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? Let's stop there for a moment. Now, Cephas, um, just to unpack that, is a reference to the, the Apostle Peter, okay, so his, his, uh, his Greek name there, okay, so Peter is whom we're talking about here. Now, what Paul had found is that there were these different groups who, by virtue of being part of the church, had found that they had a favourite teacher, and that teacher uh, had a point of difference from another teacher, and therefore people were saying, well, I think so-and-so has got a better uh, point about this or a better argument about this, so I'm going to do it what, the way that he says. I just want to try to unpack that a little bit so I give you an idea of what the tensions were. Uh, Paul, some said they followed Paul, he was the founder of the church. So, some people are deeply loyal to the founder of the church. Here's Paul, he's the man, he came to Corinth, he risked risked his life and limb to bring us the message. We're with Paul, we're sticking with him. Now, later on, after Paul finished in Corinth, that is 18 months, another guy, a Greek guy, came along by the name of Apollos. And Apollos is known to be powerful in speech, which wasn't unusual in a Greek context. You see, The Greeks were very good at what we call rhetoric, uh, presenting an argument, presenting a case for something. And in being powerful in speech, he was very influential. Uh, One would suggest that he was a philosopher as well. This is what commentators have said. And as a philosopher, he could expound the bigger picture of God and God's way in which he brought Christ into the world. So a great guy to come and listen to, probably a good apologist, uh, very wise, but powerful in speech, okay? The third person who's mentioned is Cephas. Cephas being Peter, is the disciple. And you get the sense in which, man, if I shake Peter's hand, that's the hand that touched Jesus. You know? It's like, oh, cool. Yeah? Yeah? Any of you had that experience before? You know? I touched the hand of somebody who touched. Okay, oh, okay. This sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? But uh, Peter being a disciple, a first hand experience of the person of Jesus, he'd be a great guy to know. And of course, anything that he suggests would be very, very close to Jesus' ways and hard to challenge. So again, a very good argument for following Cephas or following Peter. And then fourthly, Paul says, and some of you follow Christ. And we go, yay, some group got it right. Well, they aren't even necessarily sure, the commentators, as to whether this was a compliment You see, it's very easy to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and therefore you make up the Jesus of your own imagination. Okay, the Jesus of your own imagination, usually someone who looks a lot like you, you know, patting you on the back every time you do something. Yet the Jesus of scripture and the Jesus, the the, the Messiah from the Old Testament writings is not you. Okay, so even when they say I follow Christ, there's something in here that may be wrong, but I think I'd rather go with the idea that some of them got it right. Okay, so what does that mean for us today? What it means is that division is something that Paul is completely against, okay? So it's an obvious thing to say. He doesn't want the church to be divided. And yet we live in the 20th century, 21st century um, now, when we have all these different denominations, okay? And I just named a few biggies here, all right? What you notice with my little diagram here, though, is that the closer any denomination is to Christ, the closer they are together. All right, so the closer you become to the centre here, the closer you are together. If you're swinging way out here on the extremes of what these different denominations will believe, and you're trying to create uh, an argument for your case, which separates you, you are far away from Christ. But We can agree on a whole lot of different things, 99% actually, and that draws us closer to Christ. But something about human nature, always want to find or pick through the the divisions. Uh, When I had my time as the Baptist National Leader, I would go down to Parliament, meet with the uh, leaders down there, the Prime Minister and co. And there was um, a group of us from the different um, denominations, usually the seven or eight larger denominations. We had access, the privilege of meeting with the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister. One of the things about Parliament, they've got these funny little lifts. And when you get to go to the top, they only take about four people in each lift. So there's about six or seven of them, I think, in this circle, in this big foyer. And so people like us who are ignorant all line up to go in the lift and only a few of us can get in. So we're, oh, okay. And, uh, And they're not very reliable, actually. We got into the lift and we got part way up and it stuck. And I was like, I was looking at my company and I said, hey, did you hear the story about the Baptist, Anglican and the Catholic who got caught in a lift? <laughs> and they all roared with laughter because that's who I was with. The Catholic Cardinal and the Anglican Archbishop and me. Okay, I was the one who was underdressed for the occasion. But um, um, that's all right. But um, just by the way, you can be totally assured that um, terrorists will not be able to take out the Prime Minister because the lifts will break down. Okay, so, yeah. So... All that to say by Paul was to say, guys, if you are going to worship Christ and follow Christ, you can't be divided by allowing those who inform you to take you on a separate path away from Christ and away from each other, all right? Paul goes on, of course, to say this, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Can you you feel the sarcasm dripping out of this? That's beautiful, isn't it? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Okay, so it's a pretty bizarre scenario, isn't it? These teachers who would come along and baptise people uh, had such a power and influence in their lives that people were aligning their Christian pedigree alongside those who baptised them. Now, uh, it's, it's quite interesting. I mentioned in the first service that I was baptised by a pastor called Rex Childerhouse when I was at the Otomoto Baptist Church and I first became a Christian. Um, had another guy, Chris Johnson, came up to me during the break between the services and says, hey, Craig, I was baptised on the same day as you by the same guy. And I was like, oh, that's, that's really cool. You know, so it was a little point of contact, a little point of reference there. But we didn't then go, oh, we're sort of Rexites. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're with Rex. You know, Rex is the man. You know, what does is, what is following Rex do for you? Well, that doesn't work that way. Okay, what Paul is saying is we're baptised into Christ. He said just because a person did the baptism doesn't mean that they have some spiritual authority over you. Makes sense, doesn't it? This is not rocket science, really. Uh, Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. The most important thing about, Baptism here is that we've got to realize that it's the doorway, the gateway into the Christian faith. All denominations have baptism in some fashion, child baptism, uh, full immersion baptism. It's not, not the method, it's, it's, it's the attitude of the heart that takes somebody through that place of surrender to Christ and to publicly say, hey, this is the time when I choose to be a follower of Christ. So I just want to challenge anyone here who hasn't been baptised. Baptism is a doorway. Baptism is a gateway. And I know that when you've seen baptisms here, it can look a little bit intimidating. You know, you've got um, your face up on there telling your story. Your face is four metres wide, and uh, that can be a little bit overwhelming. We, we don't want to get in the way of that, okay? Sorry, don't want to get in the way of you being baptised. So if you want to be baptised, come and talk to us. And if it's something that we can do that's a little bit more personal and appropriate for your context, we'd love to hear what you're thinking about that. But, but don't hold back. Baptism is a sacred, sacred event, and Paul is affirming it. So let's get back to the main issue here of what it is that Paul is talking about with this, this young church. What Paul's talking about here is voices voices that come into our lives and therefore will direct the direction of our, of our faith. And so for us, we've got to ask the question about who are the voices that we are hearing? Where did the voices come? Now, over the years, we've seen a transfer of information and knowledge go from um, books to the internet. How many of you here can remember, this is an, an age thing again, somebody knocking on your door selling Encyclopedia Britannica? Right. How many of you had Encyclopedia Britannica in your home when you were raised? Okay, yep. Yeah. So the, the reason this would happen is, for those of you who are younger and don't understand this, um, somebody would knock on your door and say, for $20 a month, I can supply you with encyclopedias that will allow your children to grow up knowing stuff. Otherwise, the poor little urchins are just going to be as dumb as a brick. Okay, that, that was basically the sales pitch, wasn't it? It really was, hey, that was it. If you loved your kids, you will buy them a set of Encyclopedia Britannica. And so for 20 bucks a week, you know, um, you would get the first thing about, it's like a bit like a dictionary, and you start off with all about Aardvarks. Okay, A-A-A, Now, a lot of people ran out of money about M, so nothing got known about anything else. All right, but the whole idea was that you would be a good parent and you would buy a set of encyclopedias. And so when someone would come and visit you, your encyclopedias were in the lounge. They were there on display for everybody to say, look at you, what a great parent. You must be filled up with wisdom and knowledge. You know, because you've got these books and when they arrive every month, everybody knows you read them from cover to cover. That's how information was trans from one generation to the next. And then you'd get an update book, wouldn't you? If you paid the ongoing subscription, you'd get an update book, which would bring you all the latest knowledge from around the world and put it in your library. Fantastic. Okay, now we, um, Encyclopedia Britannica is used for uh, lighting fires. You take them in a camp. You know, when you go camping, you just grab one off the shelf and you can say, we're going to use that to cook on this week because that's all they're good for. But we don't need that, because we have Google. And no one knows more than all of us, OK? No one knows more than all of us. Well, Google's unprecedented, isn't it, really? Like, um, from my perspective, Google has been around about 18, 19 years, OK? So we've seen this huge transfer of power, information being power, from the local library to the devices that you have in your hands, literally. But what we've got to realize here is that the way we use Google reflects us, right? We look at knowledge and we think knowledge is neutral. And it is, knowledge is neutral. It is there to be taken, there to be used. But it is not neutral in as much as it reflects who you are. So, for example, um, Michaela and I have Sky at home, we're out a lot at nights, and so we think if there's anything on telly we want to watch, um, we'll record it. And then occasionally you get to the point where your recording capacity is full; it won't record anything more. And so we both sit down. And we have this giant cull. You know, now was that a series you recorded? Yeah, I want to watch it. Well, you can't keep that because it's holding 30% of the space. Uh, Well, well, what about your lot over here? And so we've got this tension. I like to record some uh, history and hunting, all right? And the history of hunting would be ideal. And so I spend my time hunting for history. So it's all wrapped up. Michaela likes the idea of um, these buy yourself a new place in the sun or do up a house one. You know those ones? Yeah, so our perfect world would be a beautiful house with lots of dead animals all around it. Okay, that would, that would, that would be a... But it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. All that to say, what's recorded on that Sky decoder recorder reflects us. Reflects us. Therefore, I just want to apply that and say, whatever you're watching on Google, whatever it is you're investigating, learning, or being entertained by, on social media, reflects you. Now, there are so many voices out there. The first thing you've got to ask is, who do you trust? So let's just think in terms of the church, okay? Because we sort of like to think that we've got a little bit going on and understand a little bit about that. So if somebody presents themselves as a teacher within the church, the first thing you've got to do is work out their credibility or their integrity, Okay, so if somebody's got a, uh, a congregation, a live one, okay, that means that somebody else must think they're okay, all right, to listen to. That's fair, fair and reasonable. Okay, they may have written a book, uh, and so all of a sudden you're starting to see that, yes, they've got a bit of life to them. Let me take an example. You've got someone like Andy Stanley who's been around for, well, since, since the Dead Sea was just sick, I think, you know, so he's been around for so long, and everybody can Trust him, they know roughly what he's about with his doctrines. Uh, if you're of a different generation, it might be Andy Stanley. Okay, that's his son, so I'm sticking with the Stanley family here. And, uh, and so you've got some credibility here. Now, look, on the internet, it's so easy to fool people. All I, I need to do, or anybody shouldn't say me, <laughs> put on a suit and tie, okay, put a nice background, a few green pot plants, talk with a deep authoritative voice and eyeball that camera, And you can come across as somebody who actually knows what they're doing. But how do we know that? How do you work out whether somebody actually knows what they're saying or not? And so you've got to be very discerning. The other thing about the internet, even in the context of Christendom, is that what you watch will reflect who you are. So if you're a deep contemplative type, you'll be reading books and listening to sermons that help you on that spiritual journey of going deeper in Christ, okay? If you're into mission, evangelism, you'll be watching people who are um, talking about that, celebrating God's goodness around the globe. Uh, If you're into something that talks about end times, um, you'll be chasing down the end times channels, okay? And so, therefore, everything that you look at Reflects who you are. The challenge, the challenge with this, is that Google is wrapped up in what we call an algorithm. So the algorithm continues to bring up in front of you things that reflect what you've already been watching. Okay. So uh, during the lockdown, our daughter and son-in-law were with us, and they had a baby while they were with us. Um, I jumped on the internet one time with them because they were looking for uh, a backpack where they could put the toddler that they've got, the two-year-old on the back and the little fella in the front and go for a walk. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Um, So I Googled all this. I still am inundated with baby products. Uh, I know all the places that you can buy Stretch and Grows, nappies, dummies, uh, everything that mums need. And it's just like, I'm overwhelmed with this stuff. And I, I don't know how it slowly dissipates off, but the algorithm has set it up in such a way that it feeds what it has defined, sort of determined for me as being something I'm interested in. So to understand Google, you have to understand yourself. To understand Google, you have to understand yourself. Paul wrote to Timothy uh, a couple of years after he wrote to the Corinthians. And he put this out to Timothy about what it is that people are prone to do when they're left to their own devices. Paul says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Can you think of a time in history when we've been able to gather a great number of teachers around us any more than we can do now? You see, the thing is that I can can track down teachers who will tell me what I want to hear. If I believe that the earth is flat, you know, like literally flat like a dish, fall off the edge, flat, I could jump online and I could find truckloads of people who will explain how that is true, okay? You can find anything that you want to prove anything that you want. So therefore, our problem today is not about information, it's about wisdom and discernment to be able to sift all the way through all of this stuff and find something that is actually truthful, okay? Now, here's the tension. This stuff is so attractive. It spins our wheels, you know, all these algorithms get us in a mode. Have you ever seen those little dogs that sit on the back of a windscreen behind a car and they go like this? That's all the algorithms trying to get you to do, is do this, okay? You start going one track and all of a sudden you've got more and you've got more and you've got more of the same and more of the same. And you're just swallowing it all up hook, line and sinker until you get to this horrible place. You know what the horrible place is? You believe it. You believe it. No credibility layered through what you discover, but just a whole lot of voices compounding the same message. Okay? That's what heresy looks like. A whole bunch of people get convinced that if they bless their pastor with a whole heap of money and he's driving around in his $60 million Leah jet praising the Lord, then that's a good thing for God. And there is dozens and dozens of other examples of this. But a lot of it at the moment, my friends, is about catastrophizing things. Whoa, if this happens, then this will happen, and that's going to happen, and this is going to happen. Okay? It's called catastrophizing. And we live in an age and stage in history now where we're very, very vulnerable to that. We're very vulnerable to that, because we know the world's in a pickle at the moment, with respect to this virus. And so it's easy to look for you know, a whole lot of uh, conspiracies. It's easy to look for a whole lot of troublemakers. And it's easy to say, oh, well, this person must be causing that to happen. And this person said this, so therefore that's the reason. And you know what it does? It robs you of your joy. Absolutely strips away your joy. And we get addicted to this stuff. We jump up in the morning and we go, what's happening now? Oh my goodness, not that. Oh boy. He said, she said that, oh, you know, your piece, gone, robbed. So what do we do? We go and binge out on Netflix to try to go into zombie land again, you know, so I don't have to wake up and read the newspaper, you know, just just keep chugging through the Netflix, you know, at three in the morning, you know, get out of bed at one in the morning and then we do it all again. TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, all this stuff. Your credibility as a Christian rides on what you listen to, read, watch, and then share with others. Let me give you a little example of what I mean. Back in 1990, I, I was, um, I don't know, 24, 25 years old, something like that. I can't remember. Um, and I went to the seminar that was being held at our local church, run by a really neat old guy called George Curl. Some of you will know George or heard of George. George was a World War II uh, navigator and a, a bomber fighter that flew over Germany. So he'd tell us these stories about his experiences in the war and then he explained to us how he's taken all those navigation skills and he's applied them to scripture and he's worked it all out, worked it all out that Jesus is returning in 2005. 2005. So... Here I was, relatively young Christian at the time, sitting there with a whole lot, bunch of people who really thought George was just the great guy and lovely guy. George would turn up, do a speaking about end times, and then he'd spend the week doing oil paintings and watercolours with people if anybody wanted to stay. Great little thing little thing going. Um, so I'm there, young Christian, I'm watching all the people in the audience with me, listening to George, and they're all doing this. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, yeah, okay. So that's cool. I go home that night, and my cousin and her husband turns up for dinner, and they say, "What'd you do today, Craig? Oh, I went to this thing at the church." Now these folks aren't Christians. I went to this thing at the church. Oh, what was all that about? Oh, it was about the return of Jesus. They've worked out in scriptures when Jesus is returning. Ah, oh, okay. So when's he returning? Two thousand and five. Just mark it on your calendar. Okay. Don't buy a house. Don't get a life insurance policy. You don't need one of those. It's all going to happen in 2005. So what I had done is I'd taken my $20 worth of credibility, my $20 reputation, we've all got a reputation, you can put money on it, whatever you want, and I'd put it on the table and my my credibility was pinned to whether George had it right or not. Okay? Now let me tell you this. I've realized that if I'm going to have to sell my integrity or my reputation at any given point, I will only sell it on the basis of one thing, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, That is the only thing worth selling your soul for. Everything else is speculative. Everything. All right. So when you are listening to all of these voices that have been channeled down the internet at you, they are not neutral because they reflect what you are trying to find out. They're not neutral. So don't give them this credibility that says, oh, you know, this is, purely good, this is pure solid information. No, it's not. You've just gone down the rabbit hole and the algorithm's working fantastically. It's giving you exactly what you want to hear. What did Paul say? Next chapter, in a couple of weeks, we're going to find this in First Corinthians. Paul said this. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, Paul knew more things than just Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But Paul said, if my reputation as an apostle, and this is what he's describing to us here, his reputation as an apostle was going to be hinged on anything, it was only going to be one thing that he was going to put his credibility on the line for, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul, what do you think about end times? Well, all I know is Jesus Christ died for our sins. you know. And if God is that big and that good, then he can look after us. What do you think about the coronavirus, Paul? Well, I'm not so sure about that, but I can tell you one thing. I'll stake my reputation that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you see what I'm heading in this? Do you see what I'm saying in this? Don't sell your credibility for a bunch of Google rumor. It is just not worth it, okay? Which raises a bigger question for us because we love voices, don't we? We've got this hole in our heart that loves information. We're naturally curious. That's who we are. We're born into God's world and we want to know how it works. But have we become addicted to social media? During the lockdown, we had nothing better to do. Yeah, seriously. Even parents with teenage kids were like, I give up. (laughs) I give up, you know, just (laughs) go and, you know, don't go on the bad stuff, you know? but it's very, very easy to become addicted to social media. Now, I'm not talking about whether you're going to go on there and learn how to bake a cake. You know, that's not a problem. I'm not worried about whether you're going to go in there and learn some some new skills or, you know, you buy or sell some stuff on Trade Me or whatever. It's it's the, uh, the stuff that robs you of your peace. That's what I'm talking about here. Robs you of your joy. And I know for myself, um, I've had this ongoing battle with social media. Uh, my kids call me a dinosaur, and I'm like, t right. you know, I was baptised into T-Rex, so that's okay, all right? Do <laughs> you like that? Um, they call me a dinosaur because I'm not up with whatever else, whatever's going on, but I've got half an ear to what is going on, okay? I don't have to swallow it all hook, line, and sinker. You see, because I have a, a real challenge going on in my in my heart, and that is that I need to protect myself for the sake of others. Um, If I've got a choice, you know, I have to make sure that there's a space in my life for the the whispers of God to be there. And so for me, when I go for a walk, I enjoy going these big walks a few times a week. I'll, I'll make sure that I'm listening to scripture or I'll just read scripture and I'll load myself up with something to meditate on and off I go. If I don't set that space aside in my head and heart, um, I'm useless to you. I'll just be speaking the rhetoric of Google or whatever voice I allow in. And so I'll ask you a simple question. Where would you prefer me to be putting my time? And if if indulging in scripture and being centered in Christ, keeping my peace, hearing the voice of the Spirit, the whispers and the leading of the Spirit is good enough for me, then it must be good enough for you too. So let me, let me read to you a little bit more scripture here about what it means for us to be in Christ and how we maintain that. Paul said to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So there's a huge measuring stick there, isn't it? There's a huge measuring stick. And if we work on the whatever's, the whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable, we get that right. Go to the top line there. It says, and the peace of God. That's your reward, the peace of God. Google just wants a piece of your mind. So they get a piece of your mind, they get a piece of your heart, and then they get a piece of your wallet. That's all it's designed to do. Don't don't be fooled. Don't think they're there for your comfort and your experience and your entertainment. They just want your dollars. OK, I'll be taking up an offering in a moment, but I uh, <laughs> can't resist that one. That was a bit naughty, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> but like any newspaper, man, they're there to sell newspapers. Yeah, you, know, you jump on the Herald sometimes and it's like, what, what, what would you want you to read? Um, Princess Catherine has left William. Oh, gosh, That's terrible. She left William for the day to attend the children's (laughs) sing contest or something, you know. Well, all they're trying to do is draw you in, you know. It's it's just the whole way the world's designed. Clickbait, you know, clickbait everywhere. So whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is holy, you can put a whole lot of whatevers. That's what we're called to, and that will restore your peace. Addiction is something you can't stop doing. And addiction is something you can't stop doing. So think about social media. Think about social media. And think for yourself about this. I don't have to make rules or regulations for you. But what we have done is online, we've put together some resources. Uh, and, you, and if you jump on our li- online on, on, the, on the internet on Google, (laughs) our website, you'll find um, a couple of things there. Firstly, um, some Bible studies in Corinthians. Maybe you'd choose to detox over a two or three or four week period and just see what the end result is. There's also um, some resources there on how to detox from the internet. Right, how to detox. All this I say to you, None of it I can command you. All this I say to you so that you can determine what the voices are in your head. And then we don't end up as a church or a people that say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. And we're just left with a remnant that follow Christ. God wants to have you in a joy-filled relationship with him. Not competing for space in your ever-filling mind. He wants to have you to himself, and there is a tremendous reward by being able to allow that to happen. So I'm going to call the band up now, we're going to do a final song. But I want to pray for us, if you allow me to, if you don't mind standing, and, uh, and just ask God to, to bless us. God, we... Um, We look at this, what seems to be a a very simple piece of scripture where Paul challenged the Corinthians about the voices that they were hearing. And all of a sudden we found that it's just jumped 2,000 years right into our context now. And uh, man, who was Paul talking to when he talked about itching ears? That has to be us. Surrounding ourselves with lots of voices, lots of teachers, that has to be us never before as a generation had what we experience. And so that requires great discipline, great wisdom, great discernment for us to be able to cancel out the voices, cancel out the voices that are going to pull us away from Jesus at the centre. So God, I pray for courage. I pray for courage for for us all, but for those who are really, really challenged uh, with media Uh, Addiction. we just want to ask you, Lord, to help us. Help us to have the ability to hear your voice and just to maintain our peace, to put Christ at the very centre of all that it means to be a follower of Jesus. God, we thank you for Scripture. We thank you that we can legitimately raise these concerns because the Bible transcends time. It understands the nature of the human heart. It understands... temptations that we face. And so we pray, Lord, give us the courage. Give us the courage to believe for your peace in the midst of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.